This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. The way to Everest is not a yellow brick road. John Krakauer. So I've had a number of people be evacuated off the trail over the years. And the very first time that happened, I had an older couple on the trip and they were strong hikers and backcountry skiers and owned an outdoor sports store. And they were just fabulous and strong. And, but he had been struggling with some respiratory and GI problems for a few days. We were actually on our way down at that point. And that's not when you expect anybody to be having uh, serious altitude problems for sure. But he was not hiking very well and we put him on a horse to help for the day that that we were gonna do this big climb and I actually was hiking with the group he was out ahead of us and I left the group and hiked out ahead to catch up with him and the horse because I wanted to see how he was doing and I got up there he was sitting on a stone bench and I walked up to see how he was doing he looked at me and he just fell forward onto me I'm Doc and this is the John freaking Mirpod. Welcome to the John Freakin' Muir Pod. Lace up those boots and sling on the pack for a romp through trails, short and long. With your host and renaissance man, Doc, it's time to embrace the suck. 
Welcome back to another week on the trail. I'm Doc, and this is the John Freaking Muir Pod. Let's start off with a reminder. If you are enjoying the podcast, take just a minute, help us out, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're not enjoying the pod, well, just go ahead and keep that to yourself. All right, let's get to this week's guest. Well, this week, I have to give a shout out and thank you to my sister, Laura, for being my talent scout. I'm talking to a friend of hers who has lived a life of adventure, and I'm very excited to talk to her. Welcome to the John Freakin' Muir Pod, Dina Zabaldo. Thanks for having me, Doc. I'm happy to be here. Now, I have, I've taken a look at uh, a list of your experiences, and I'm not sure if, if your type of adventure lends itself to the unique American long trail <laughs> tradition of trail names. So I thought I'd just throw it out there. Do you have a trail name? I don't. Okay. Then we'll go strictly by Dina. <laughs> sure. Okay. Hey, have you listened to the podcast at all? I listened to a couple episodes after you invited me to do this. Okay. So you know that we have a regular segment called the Pro Tip Insight of the Week, and that is towards the end of the episode, I'm going to turn to you and I'm going to say, Dina, what is your pro tip? What uh, piece of wisdom can you share with our listeners to make their next outdoor adventure even better? So don't be surprised. Okay. I'll be ready. Okay. Very good. <laughs> Hey, another feature we've been doing this season is the Must Bring Gear Review, sponsored by the outstanding ultralight backpacking gear company, Outdoor Vitals. Here's how it works. If we were to let a stranger pack your bag with pretty much generic gear for a multi-day hike, what is the one specific piece of gear you would insist on being packed? And if you've got a particular brand for that specific piece of gear, even better. So Dina, what's your, your must bring piece of gear? And this might even give us some insight, a little 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 taste of of what your adventures kind of center around oh well it would have to be like a negative 25 degree sleeping bag <laughs> i run really cold i sleep real cold but more than a brand i would say women specific gear if somebody else were gonna pack my bag i find that having women specific gear from jackets to pack to sleeping bag makes a huge difference okay and negative 25 degrees, that's quite, uh, that's quite the item. <laughs> it's like an expedition weight bag. Yeah, uh, a lot of what I did over the years was guide trips to Everest Base Camp, and we're sleeping on the glacier up there on the ice, and mm -hmm. sleeping on ice is cold. Okay, so we're going to hear all about the Himalayas and your experience there. But before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about your background, you know, kind of where you grew up. What kinds of uh, sports and hobbies were you engaged in as a child? And how did the outdoor adventure cult rope you in? Sure. I grew up in Florida. That's where all, that's where all future uh, Himalayan guides grow up is in Florida. <laughs> right. It's one of the great ironies of life that <laughs> I've ended up where I am. Uh, because I also didn't really grow up doing any of this kind of outdoor adventure stuff. Um, yeah, that was all something that came later in life. So I joined the Peace Corps when I was 28, and that was my first real experience of mountains. I was sent to Nepal, and I lived there for over two years. Okay. And now growing up, did you have brothers, sisters? I have a younger brother. Younger brother. And did parents take you out on any kind of outdoor camping trips or expeditions or day hikes even? No, none of that, actually. So... Uh, I did a little bit of hiking in college and after college, I lived in Louisiana and started canoeing and day hiking. And um, yeah, I had never been backpacking. I had maybe been car camping once when I 
joined the Peace Corps and ended up in a remote village in the mountains. Okay. And so what, tell us about your, your, your introductory steps into outdoor adventure. I know you, you, you say that you've had some, uh, some solo road trips and maybe uh, some experiences with Mount Tam and, and Point Reyes. Yeah, that's all been recently during COVID, especially. Oh, okay. Got so, it. Um, yeah, originally, I mean, I, I moved to a village where there was no road. So I flew into a grass airstrip on a small plane and hiked about two hours up the ridge and lived up there for two years. And while I was there, hiked all over that area, as well as did some of the major treks in Nepal and absolutely loved it. Loved the culture, loved the people, loved the geography. Um, I had a really great postmate who took me on a lot of hikes. You're asking about introduction to things. I can remember hiking down a steep trail to a large river that was low at that time of year. We were gonna have to cross it and he uh, had picked up a stick and started whittling all of the branches off of it. And I asked what it was for. And he said it was to cross the river. I said, well, I'm, I want one of those. He said, this one is for you. <laughs> uh, so he was really supportive in kind of getting me going there on a couple of treks and hikes. And yeah, and I don't know, I just took to it naturally. Okay. And how does a Florida girl uh, get involved in the Peace Corps? What was the inspiration there? And was it a radical culture shift to go from Florida to Nepal? Well, I always say my first cross-cultural experience was moving to Louisiana because that was quite a difference. Um, But yeah, it was a big culture shift, of course, to move to that part of the world. Travel in general, I think, uh, opens our eyes to other ways of being and to see ourselves more clearly, but especially in that part of the world, the cultures and habits and food and everything is so foreign that it was probably a bigger adjustment than some other places we could be. And how did you get involved in the Peace Corps? Yeah, I had looked at it when I first got out of graduate school and it was a two-year commitment. I wasn't quite ready for that at the time, but three years later, that was as long as I had committed to being in this job in Louisiana and I looked at it again and was totally ready to do it. I filled out the application in an hour and sent it in and they let me in. What was the notification process like? How long did you have to wait to find out? Uh, I don't quite remember the timing of all of it, but you know, they first they tried to send me to Mongolia and Mongolia wouldn't have me because I was not a certified teacher and they were nominating me in an education program. And at that point, I was pretty sure nobody would ever hire me for anything because I had been rejected by Mongolia and it was some kind of a <laughs> new low. If, uh, yeah, if you, get, if you get rejected by Mongolia, <laughs> let me tell you. Yeah. So, uh, but actually, you know, Mongolia has really high educational standards. So that was a surprise, but being a former communist country, actually have like 99% literacy. So they were only taking certified teachers and that was just as well. Cause I mentioned, I don't really love the cold. I get pretty cold at night and uh, Mongolia is one of the coldest places on the planet. So they invited me to serve in Nepal, which at that time was a pretty coveted posting and I felt very lucky to be able to go there. And so they sent me a packet uh, describing people's assignments and what life was like there. And I can remember reading about somebody who was stationed, you know, not far from an airstrip in the mountains, days walk from the road. And I just thought it was absolutely crazy. And of course, that's right where I ended up and loved it. 
Now you say Mongolia is known for being pretty pretty darn cold. I I think I I would say the same about Nepal. Well, Nepal actually runs from sea level to the highest mountains in the world. And so it depends what altitude you're at, but down on the Gangetic Plain on the border with India, it can be really hot. There's lowland jungle, there's tigers. So you get all different kinds of environments depending on the altitude that you're at. And did the Peace Corps provide tiger training before they sent you over there? No, they were much more concerned with teaching me how to prick my finger and test for malaria and uh, send in a variety of samples. <laughs> Gave me a bunch of shots. Nice. And what was your what were your <clears throat> excuse me what were your responsibilities in Nepal as part of the Peace Corps? Sure. So I was stationed in a district headquarters in a remote area, and there was a branch of the National University that was there, and. All across Nepal, there are campuses like that where the central university administers the exams and then they have teachers in those areas. So people are getting varying qualities of education based on how good the, the local teaching community is. And so I went out to partner with a local teacher and to teach English at the high school and college level and to train teachers that were high school level teachers in other villages nearby. And then while I was there, he and I worked really well together and we started a nonprofit that was focused on poverty alleviation. And so I did a lot of that work as well as wrote some grants with him to build new classrooms for the campus and a library. Okay, that's something we have in common. Not the, the poverty yeah. alleviation so much as uh, we, we both were high school English teachers. Oh, yeah. Where did you teach English, Doc? I, I taught at Grant High School in Van Nuys for a while. And now I work in as a, a, I was a, an assistant principal and a principal in Santa Clarita. And now I'm a district administrator uh -huh. in Santa Clarita. Yeah. So. so you've had plenty of time in the classroom. You know what that's like. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> I, I, I firmly believe that spending a lot, so much time with kids keeps you young. Certainly. And also a good balance to then going out and having some peace and quiet in the wilderness. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Much needed. <laughs> and so as a, as a high school English teacher in Nepal, I mean, what, were, what were classroom conditions like? How many kids did you have in a class? Yeah. What kinds of, uh, you know, what were the standards that you covered? Or maybe even the literature that you covered? Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, I had anywhere from 20 to 150 kids in a classroom, depending on what it was. So the required, like, English classes at 10th and 11th grade were very large. And then uh, students who were majoring in English and uh, yeah, a little bit higher grades were much smaller. Mm -hmm. And the curriculum was kind of crazy. Basically anything that had been translated into English counted as English literature. So we read John Donne and Chekhov and I mean, just literature from around the world, which was, a lot for people to absorb just in terms of the cultural references and context and things like that and there were widely varying abilities in english sure. from yeah kids who couldn't really even read to kids who understood the content of more complex literature they were all in the same classroom mm -hmm. and how did how did you uh, this is get quickly devolving into an education <laughs> episode but how did you differentiate with all those those different ability levels in your classroom that's that's sounds pretty tough 
Yeah, it was hard. And I didn't speak Nepali very well when I first got there. I relied a lot on my counterpart teacher in the larger classes and taught. Also, I taught grammar classes. And so that was much easier than teaching literature, of course. Um, and I like grammar and math as well, you know, things that have structure to them. And so, so I did some of that. And then in the upper level classes, we did all kinds of things. We did role play, like acting out, uh, screenplay type or plays. Mm -hmm. And uh, oh, gosh, I don't even remember all, all different kinds of activities, which is very foreign to have any kind of classroom activity, you know, anything where the teacher wasn't standing there lecturing at the students was very novel. So I relied a lot on that. And, uh, and I, like I said, taught really well with my counterpart teacher, he was awesome. And we forged a really great relationship. So he, we're still friends today. <laughs> I was gonna ask if you still kept in touch. Yeah, so the nonprofit that we started is still running, and I have a small nonprofit here that's basically grant making to support that nonprofit and one other in Nepal. And so we raise money here to support programs there with people that I've known for more than 20 years now. And yeah, those programs continue. What's the name of the nonprofit, and how can our, our listeners get involved if they so choose? Sure. So our organization here is Changing Lives Nepal. And you can find us at changinglivesnepal.org. And we'd love a donation of any amount to support the projects there. We're all volunteer here in the U.S. So all of the donations go directly to Nepal and to the projects. Uh, we work in sustainable organic agriculture. So we're growing coffee at the moment and macadamia nuts. And we also have a children's home and do some education work. Okay. And what were the dates of your work in the, in the Peace Corps in Nepal? 99 to 01. 99 to 01. The full year 01 or just part of the year? Uh, I actually left Nepal on September 11th. Okay. And that's a, a fateful day in uh, American history. How, it was. And we were you know, half a day ahead. Uh, I left Nepal in the morning going to Tibet. I had just completed for 28 months in Nepal. So we had three months of training at the beginning. You were asking what Peace Corps does to prepare us. There was a whole training curriculum actually. And then I had two years of service and then I stayed another month to work. And so I was going to travel in Tibet and got on a bus and went overland. <clears throat> and of course, with the time difference, we were out ahead of the US. And so maybe four or five days later, we passed a vehicle of tourists that was coming the other direction in Tibet. And we were stopped in the same place and talking to them. And they said something big had happened in the US. But I didn't really know. They didn't know any details. They said some planes hit some buildings. And I was in remote China and uh, also behind a news firewall. So when I first saw them, there was no internet where I was. And then a couple of days after that, I finally hit somewhere that had internet cafes, Shigatse. And uh, when I checked, of course, there was, I mean, hundreds of emails of people checking on me and <clears throat> wondering if I was okay and where I was and why I wasn't responding and sending links to footage I couldn't watch because I couldn't access those email, uh, those websites from within China. And yeah, so I was there for a lot of the initial uh, response to that tragedy. And it felt really safe to be there. I mean, there was not going to be any place 
better than heavily watched and guarded Western <laughs> area of Chinese uh, territory. Yeah, and so I was there for yeah uh, about a month, and then I went on to Thailand to a Muslim island actually for another month, and that was an interesting cultural experience as well, given everything that was going on in the world. Okay, now I want to I want to go back and and unpack some of this because uh, sure. some very interesting points there. I think uh, myself included, I think we take a lot of things for granted and don't have. Um, I didn't necessarily realize that you would be four or five days behind news wise at that time. I, I mean, just the world seems so small uh, to us Americans over here, and you know you you know what's happening on the other side of the world in in an instant right google news internet everything and so it just kind of struck me a bit that you were you were over there and five days behind basically uh before you knew exactly what had happened in in new york on september 11th and so that uh that kind of just kind of put th puts things into perspective a little bit yeah, especially nowadays that we all have constant access, mostly wherever we go. Mm -hmm. But uh, even at that time, I mean, we were both far beyond the reach of any cell towers. People didn't really have cell phones. I certainly didn't have one. That had all just hit in the U.S. during the time that I was in the Peace Corps. So when I got here again, uh, everybody was very disturbed. They didn't have a cell phone and couldn't tell them when I'd be 10 minutes late for things. <laughs> but at the time, traveling, I mean, you just were present where you were, still try to be that way. And yeah, and you'd roll into a town with an internet cafe eventually and check some emails, see what was going on in the world and then keep going. That was back when you had to like download photos off your SD card onto something else. <laughs> I know some of our younger listeners are listening in right now and saying to themselves, that sounds like another century. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. another century, actually. Yeah. Well, no, I guess that was 2001. Almost. So. Almost. <laughs> yeah. Almost. And then yeah. this concept of a news firewall, you know, living in a mm -hmm. free country and, you know, having news all around us, probably too much news sometimes, but mm -hmm. um, having a news firewall and not having access to, you know, international news. I mean, what, what was that like? Mm-hmm. You know, I had already been two years in a remote village where I barely had access to those kinds of things. I didn't have a phone even where I was living. So people used to call the shop down from where I lived and asked to speak to me. And then they'd have to call back in 15 minutes and somebody would run and get me and I'd come down there and then whoever it was would call me back. So I was used to a very low level of connectivity and it wasn't a big adjustment at that time. But certainly, I mean, for people who are living within that, uh, there's a burden, you know, of not being able to access what is going on in the world, but also not being able to share the reality of what is happening to them in the world. And you've probably seen images come out of Tibet over the years that were not intended to be shared, certainly not by the Chinese government, right? And that's, mm -hmm. so the control goes both ways, what's coming in as well as what's going out. Right, so I guess there's, there's that whole involuntary news firewall and then there's the you know getting out into the backcountry and doing a voluntary news That's firewall right. you go you go back and you lose yourself for a couple of weeks and you come <laughs> out and you say i wonder what happened in the world um but two different yeah. experiences 
And I love that about backcountry trekking, you know, uh, the Everest trip really changed a lot over the time that I was guiding it because cell towers reached into that area and people had more and more regular access. But when I first started, and certainly a lot of the other places, almost every other place that I guide, there's no cell coverage out there. And so it's a digital detox, which is really good for all of us. Not necessarily easy for those of us who are used to being highly connected, but uh, I think everybody would say it's actually, it's a good experience to see what it's like to just drop in and um, be present in a different way. Mm-hmm. And I love facilitating that for people. Nice. Tell us a little bit about uh, your, your trip to that um, island in Thailand. Oh, that sure. Was, that, was, that was all Muslim. And in that particular time period, right after the attacks, I mean, how did, how did that all shape up? Yeah, uh, that was Kolanta, and it's predominantly Muslim, although not entirely. And of course, uh, the sects or set of tenets that people follow in Southeast Asia is slightly different from Shia and Sunni Muslims. People were uh, really welcoming and supportive of me as an individual while still, you know, having some problems with American government policy. And that seems fair enough because I have some problems with American government policy and always have, and all of us do. You know, we don't agree with every single thing our government does. And, uh, and you know, we go other parts of the world and appreciate the people there, even if we don't like the politics. You know, there's tremendous corruption in Nepal. And that is hard to deal with when I'm there mm-hmm. and to see the impact of. And at the same time, the Nepali people are just amazing. And Thai people are super friendly and great. And, yeah, I had a really good rapport with the people in the in the resort where I was staying, there were very few people traveling at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's nice to hear the difference of the the macro and the micro. I think I think mm-hmm. uh, we're all in the same position that you know there are stances by countries around the world that we may not agree with, but if we're interacting with a person from that country, you know, we we treat them at face value and and uh, uh, treat them on an individual level. And so I'm glad to hear that that was your experience over there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. And so what was, what was the biggest adjustment you had to make? What was the biggest cultural adjustment you had to make going from America, going from Florida or Louisiana to Nepal? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it might be the, the lack of privacy and the tendency to be watched in everything that I did. I mean, when I was first there for three months of training, I was living with a family and didn't speak much Nepali at all by then. Of course, they were teaching us, and I could say things like, what is your favorite fruit? (laughs) Or which way to wherever I was trying to go, but I couldn't understand any of the responses. So, So people were talking about me and to me all the time in ways that I couldn't understand initially. And they would just sit there and watch me, watch what I ate, how I ate it, how much of it I ate, how many grains of rice I dropped while I ate with my hand. They would laugh at like the technique that I used for, you know, eating rice with my hand. And I got much better at that. I do that very naturally now. But, you know, when I started, uh, when I was sick, so I got a fever when I was living with this family during training and then everybody comes to visit. 
So I'm like lying in bed with a 103 degree fever and mosquito netting over me and it's monsoon, it's hot, it's sticky, it's uncomfortable. And half the village came by to like see how I was doing. They'd sit next to the bed, they'd talk with each other, they'd look at me, they'd talk about how maybe I was going to die. <laughs> Very, you know, matter of factly. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And the idea that you would want to be alone when you were suffering was very foreign. And uh, ideas of privacy in general, like that I would like to like sit around in my, in the place where I lived in my village that I would like to sit around and read at night by myself was also kind of a strange thing. Sounds almost like you were on display. A little bit. I think life in a fishbowl is not an uncommon experience for Peace Corps volunteers around the world. It depends a little bit on the culture, but also a lot of cultures are just much more communal. People aren't used to living in isolation the way that we do. They live in, in Nepal, traditionally, they live in large joined families. And so there's people around and it's just, it's, it's not uh, an intrusion to know what somebody is doing or watch there or sit there while they're, I mean, sometimes people would like come over and want to sit there and watch me read. If I was like sitting outside or something, they'd just check me out for a little while. <laughs> I was going to ask about the family structures and the, and the living arrangements, because it sounds like, you know, in that particular situation with, with, you know, kind of being on display and a lack of privacy, that that's just a like you said, a cultural thing. They they mm -hmm. they they don't have the same type of uh, housing situation that that we have. Uh, not the same kind of housing situation. Also, they have a tendency to just kind of remark on whatever is or is true. So there's. Yeah. The housing situation, like I said, people traditionally lived in joined families where daughters left the home to become part of their husband's family boys brought a wife into the family. The oldest boy would get married first and his wife would start to care for the parents and the family. And then as the younger brothers got married, the oldest brother's wife would have more responsibility in the house and the younger wives would start to take the lower level jobs. And um, joined families when they work well, work really well. And I have some close friends there that still live in a joint family are really happy with it. It's generally done through arranged marriage. So the family is choosing who is moving in and becoming part of the family, right? Um, and, you know, if the family doesn't function as well as many families across the world don't, then it can be really hard. And there's definitely a tendency these days for more people to want to live on their own. Mm -hmm. So not only multi-generational in, in the same house, but also multiple families at the same generational level in oh, the yeah. same house. Yeah. I can't imagine living with my brother-in-law. That would drive <laughs> me nuts. Sorry, sorry, sorry brother-in-law, yeah, yeah. but... Uh, well, you wouldn't because your sister would have gone to live with him. <laughs> yes, I'm not. I'm not actually referring to Laura. Uh, I'm actually referring to my wife's side of the family. Uh -huh. so I'm, I'm pretty sure he doesn't listen, so we're we're okay. <laughs> wow. And and in terms of the the type of house, I mean, how big are the houses there to to, to incorporate totally these depends. multi generational, multiple levels of the same generation? Yeah, it totally depends. I mean, depends on 
where they're living as well as the affluence. Um, there are mud huts, there are stone huts, there are concrete buildings and yeah, uh, smaller or larger depending on what you can afford, but not uncommon to have uh, a family of eight or nine in a small like one or two room space. And that's why everybody is in everybody else's business. Oh, that happens no matter what in a village. Uh, yeah. You could still be living separately and everybody is still in everybody's business. And when I first went to Nepal, and even in years since, people have been like, wow, it must have just been so peaceful. And, you know, the visions of Nepal that people conjure. And actually, life in a village is full of petty politics and roosters crowing at all hours of the night and a variety of other animals and people coughing and uh, temple bells ringing at 4 a.m. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's a village. Do you have a good set of earplugs? Oh, I just got used to sleeping through it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Very good. Hey, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to get into the story of how you got into being a guide in the Himalayas and some of your adventures. So stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. From the backcountry to the backyard, we believe everyone deserves the highest level of protection. Since 1984, Sawyer Products offers the best, most technologically advanced solutions for protection against sun, bugs, and water, using time-released liposome technology, topical insect repellents, and new standards in water filtration. And with every Sawyer product you buy, you are helping to provide clean water through 140 charities in 80 countries with their long-lasting water filters. Every Sawyer product you buy is an investment in our common humanity. Choose Sawyer and keep the adventure going knowing that their products have been tested and chosen by those who count on serious protection on the trail all day long. The John Freakin' Meerpot is sponsored by Outdoor Vitals, the ultralight backpacking gear company whose mission is to improve the mental, physical, and emotional health of mankind by facilitating impactful outdoor experiences. Outdoor Vitals creates innovative technical products with confidence-inspiring education that empowers outdoor ultralight adventurers. Their focus on performance and durability enables you to live ultralight with gear you can actually be confident in. Whether you're looking for an ultralight sleep system, shelter, or pack, or if you're looking for top quality apparel for the trail, you can find it at Outdoor Vitals. Do yourself a favor. Live ultralight. All right, welcome back. We're talking to Dina Zabaldo, and we're going to get into the story of how she became a guide in the Himalayas. But before we do that, I want to go back to a couple of items real quick before I forget. First of all, how, how did you meet my sister? Oh, I, I met her through friends one New Year's Eve when I was just moving back from Nepal to the U.S., and I wasn't quite sure if I really wanted to be here or not. I sublet a place in San Francisco for three months between trekking seasons in Nepal and thought I would just kind of see how it goes. And um, 
I met her out and then she and her then boyfriend and eventually husband and some other friends of ours all had such an amazing time and started hanging out together regularly. And then we planned a Burning Man camp together for a number of years and we just got to be good friends. I lived with Laura and Mark for a little while in a shared house and have known her for not sure how many years now. It's been quite a while. A shared house. Sounds like a, a Nepali experience. Yeah, actually a classic Berkeley experience. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. All right. And also, I, I was neglectful. You mentioned the, the food in Nepal, and I neglected oh, yeah. to ask you, what was your favorite food in Nepal? Oh, dalbat tarkari. That's oh. the required answer. <laughs> okay. and, and, and what is that? That is rice with lentils and vegetables, and that's kind of the staple diet everybody eats twice a day. Now, that varies a little bit for high mountain peoples who might tend to eat more potatoes and less rice, and uh, if you're very poor, you might end up eating a lot more millet or corn instead of rice, but typically the, the standard fare diet is rice with lentils and vegetables and possibly a little bit of meat, if you're lucky, twice a day. Okay, and what is the meat of choice in Nepal? Well, that varies on who you talk to, but there is, these days there's chicken, but when I was there in the Peace Corps, there wasn't very much chicken, and what was there was like free-range rooster. You would not kill a perfectly good uh, egg-laying hen, so you ate rooster, which is very tasty, actually. Um, a lot of goat, and so that was the most common meat when I was there. Water buffalo. Um, must be the predominant. So I, I've not had goat or water buffalo. What what is their equivalent taste? Do you think? Uh, goat is not so different from lamb, and water buffalo is a little bit tougher. Maybe a little tougher version of beef. Okay. And then, of course, they you know over the last twenty years they overthrew the monarchy, and there was a period where people ate a lot of beef all of the ethnic groups basically in rebellion against the Hindus who had ruled Nepal for so long, <clears throat> slaughtered cows and ate beef and, you know, as a, a form of rebellion and yeah, political statement. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Very good. Now, how did you, how did you go from being in the Peace Corps and teaching English and then kind of traveling uh, around after right around 9-11, how did you transition into becoming a, a trekking guide for sure. Himalayan trips? Sure. So when I moved back to the United States, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do with myself, and I moved out to San Francisco. Um, my postmate in Peace Corps, who was a year ahead of me, so he had been there for a year when I showed up. We overlapped for a year. The guy I was saying uh, supported me a lot as I started trekking. He was going to graduate school in Stanford at Stanford. And so I came out with two duffel bags and slept on his dorm room floor. And this was when Craigslist was a very new thing. So I got a job and a place to live and all of this and lived in San Francisco for a couple of years and loved it. Loved San Francisco, made a lot of good friends out here, but never really fully reassimilated into American life. And thought that I might want to go back and spend some more time there and 
the flights were particularly expensive compared to living there. So I thought maybe I would take a trekking group with me to pay for the cost of my flight. And then I could do whatever I wanted once I was over there. And I was thinking about all these things. Eventually, I did go back and visit in the middle of the three years that I lived in California and decided I did want to go back. And so I quit my job and I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do with myself. And a friend of mine who was in marketing had gotten me to agree to go to this networking event with her. And you probably know these things because half the people there are like in marketing or the real estate agents. And I knew they were all going to be like, hi, I, you know, the salesman, what do you do? <laughs> and so I needed to have a ready answer. And I thought I would tell them all I was a trekking guide and that I led trips. And so I told them all that and they were like, wow, that's so cool. Can you send me some information on that? I was like, oh, sure. And then I had to go home and figure it all out. <laughs> <laughs> We call so that, that we call that speaking it into existence right there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think it was FDR who said something like, anytime uh, somebody asks you if you can do something, tell them, sure, I can, and then set about figuring out how to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so that, that's actually how I got started. I put together a trip um, with the support of a friend of mine who had edited The Lonely Planet in Nepal and had been guiding trips. She connected me with her tour operator and I, I put together a trip and although none of the people I met that night ended up coming, <clears throat> very serendipitously a group formed uh, people that I found or was connected to in different ways. Some people I didn't know at all and some people that I did and that was my first trekking group. And I got over there and guided that trip. And then it was kind of like, well, that's done. And, and did a few other things that year, traveled a lot. And then some friends reached out to me. And they, they were like, we couldn't go last fall. And like, what, what's going on now? And I was like, oh, I don't have another group. And they're like, oh, there's six of us. <laughs> I was like, okay, great. What do you want to do? <laughs> now, hang on, so Dina. I hang on. I, I, I don't want to skip over this, this first trip. So you, you kind of you – <laughs> Told people you were going to be a trekking guide, or you are, you were a trekking guide, and then you went about uh, putting this together, and you get over to Nepal, and you've got how many people with you? Well, I went ahead of them. Okay, you went ahead of them, and then and then you brought over how many? Um, that's a good question. How many were in that first group? Maybe seven or so. Okay, and you had never you had never been a trekking guide before. Well, I had done some trekking when I was in the Peace Corps and I had organized the logistics for some other volunteers to come out to where I live. And we all trekked to Makalu, which was the is the fifth highest large fifth highest mountain in the world and was the largest mountain in the area where I was living. Um, So we did that trek. And although physically it was super demanding for me at the time, uh, I did all the like food and hiring the porters and arranging some of that stuff because I was local there and I I do that very naturally. (laughs) Okay. So I want to hear about the logistics on this because as you were explaining it, I had in my my mind that can you bring over six, eight people and uh, they hand you a map, you know, the, the, the company that you're, you're, being the trekking guide for they give you a map and say okay go to it dina and and you're kind (laughs) of on your own i'm like how does this work yeah and you know often people think like wow you're off in the back country and you know in these remote areas just carrying your pack and hiking but it's not really like hiking is in the states so for one thing these are fully supported higher end trips which means that we have um 
a kitchen that travels with us generally, although I think not on that trip. On that trip, there were lodges, but for a lot of the trips that I do, there's a kitchen with a cook and people to help, and there are pack animals or porters or combination of the two. And then also just having lived in Nepal for so long, I didn't really want to ever put somebody out of employment because that's a big issue. So uh, we always brought a local guide. Even when I first started, I, I would bring a local guide that I would partner with. And I can't quite remember on that first trip who that was, but then I ended up with somebody that I worked with for many years uh, while I was there and forged a close relationship with. And he didn't speak very much English at the beginning, so it was really good for both of us because he wasn't, it was harder for him to run a large group, only speaking mostly Nepali. And over the years, his English got better and he started taking more responsibility for the groups. And that felt really good because, yeah, I don't know, I don't have a lot of ego in it. Like, I'm happy to have him brief the group and start doing some of those things, doing medical checks, trained him to do that over the years. And mm -hmm. Now, what was the name of the trekking company that so, you were working for at that time? I had my own, so that was my own company. So I put oh. the trip together myself. Uh, the first three or four trips I put together myself under Parahamsa, which is my business. And so you were asking, so that first trip, I mean, I had, I had a team of people and I put together those logistics working with a partner in Kathmandu and then yeah ran the trip and so when <clears throat> when people show up I'm taking them out touring them in Kathmandu taking them to see different things in the city and arranging a lot of special experiences for them so for one thing you never start a journey without a blessing so over the years, every group that I've had has always received some kind of blessing, whether that has been from Hindu sadhus or from Buddhist monks. Uh, there's always been some kind of ritual at the beginning in Kathmandu, which has been a great cultural experience. And then we go off into the mountains after a couple of days and start hiking. And That's very similar, very similar to my hiking experience. We start the... the the trip with a blessing it's usually my wife telling me don't do something stupid and get hurt uh-huh <laughs> yeah she's blessing you for your well-being that's Absolutely. right <laughs> that, that, that's what i tell myself uh -huh. <laughs> now when you when you left the city and you go out into the uh nepal backcountry i'll call it um how long were the trips i mean are these are these day trips or are these you know week-long trips what kind of distance yeah. do you cover yeah, so those are all good questions. So the trips generally are about three weeks in country. And of that, anywhere from 13 days on up trekking. So the longer trips that are a month in country have been even in three full weeks trekking, even a little longer, 24 days trekking maybe was the longest one. And uh, how many days? What was the other thing you asked? Uh, distance. Distance, everybody always asks that, but really in Nepal, we're concerned with altitude and incline. So you can only go so many meters in a day, which is about 300 meters up, 1,000 feet, and then you should stop in order to acclimatize, and that's after about 10,000 feet, right? So when you once you hit 10,000 feet, you want to start going at a more measured and controlled uh, acclimatization. Yeah. That is a great point. I had totally disregarded that up until this up until this very moment. Uh, what is the altitude of Kathmandu? 
5,000 and something feet. Wow. That, yeah. that, that is not about what as, I expected. It's about as high as Denver. That's what I was going to say. That yeah. I, You imagine Kathmandu, and I, I'm thinking it's you know, 12,000, 13,000 feet already. Oh, no. Yeah, so it's a valley, which was part of why the Kathmandu Valley was such an important place in the Himalayas because trading came through there um, from the lowland areas up over the foothills and into this large, not-so-high area. And you can bring animals from lowland areas up there, and then yaks uh, and yak trading caravans would come down from high mountains to not all the way to Kathmandu, but like in the Everest region, they come down to Namche, which is at 11,000 feet or so. And so that's kind of where the the peoples meet. Okay. But Kathmandu also, uh, yeah, large flat area with good uh, fertile fields and it just made it a natural. It's the only, if you look at a topographic map of the Himalayas, it's the only place of its kind that's like that. And the mountains around it start to get quite high very quickly. Yes. Yes, they do. And so uh, I know how, how many, how many trips have you guided over the years? Just ballpark estimate. I don't know, 30, maybe a little more. Okay. And I imagine from those 30 expeditions, not expeditions, those 30 treks, uh, multi-day, multi-week treks, you probably have a number of stories uh, of things that have occurred. Uh, but before we get to that, because uh, I want to hear about that, but before sure. we get to that, you know, if my wife were to tell me, now don't, don't do something stupid and, and get hurt, uh, and I, I leave and I fly into Kathmandu, how long does it take me or how, how do I get from Kathmandu to Everest Base Camp? What does that whole experience look like? Sure. So you're going to arrive in Kathmandu. We're going to spend two to three days acclimatizing, getting used to the culture, getting oriented for the trip, getting ready, gear check, all of that kind of stuff. And then we're going to fly from Kathmandu into Lukla. And the first time I flew into Lukla, it was still uh, the old, shorter airstrip without much pavement. And man, you were like, circling in the in the air and then on the ground it was pretty crazy and even these days it's an adventure for people just to land in Lukla the airstrip is on an angle and so uh, it's stall aircraft that typically landed there especially early on and now since then they've paved and widened the airstrip and it's a lot more comfortable and people still find it to be very exhilarating but it's not quite as wild as it once was <laughs> and uh, so we land in Lukla and then we gather all our gear and meet our staff and load up the animals and hike not too far that day because we can never quite tell when the flights are going to go. The weather's really unpredictable and in Nepal as long as the flight goes that day it's considered to be on time. So we hike a little ways and stop for the night. And then the next day we have a big climb up to Namche. And that's really where people start to get their first taste of uh, what it's like to be climbing in the Himalayas because it's a long uphill stretch uh, into a beautiful mountain bazaar town that is surrounded by snowy peaks. Now, when you say bizarre, you, you don't mean B-I-Z-A-R-R-E. You mean yeah. B-A-Z-A-A-R. That's right. I mean, a, tra a traditional trading post where Got three it. valleys meet uh, the lower area. So three high valleys come together, and then there's a path up from the lower area. So it was a traditional trading area. Mm -hmm. And what is the altitude of Namche? 
Uh, 11,200 maybe. Okay. And Lukla, what what is the uh, altitude there? Uh, 99. Okay. So you go from Kathmandu at about 5,000. I actually don't know these numbers so well off the top of my head. And it's been a number of years since I've been guiding Everest Base Camp, at least five or six. (laughs) We'll put a disclaimer out there. Check check your altitudes before going, but uh, just roughly. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So you. you Yeah. And then we're going to hike. We're going to hike from there about nine days up and four days back, roughly, because of the altitude acclimatization. So we're going to hike much longer days coming back, but we're going to work our way up into the mountains. There's two places where we're going to spend a second night just so that we can acclimatize well. So we'll stay at that elevation for two nights. One of them is in Namche. It's about 11,000 feet because we've flown from Kathmandu, which is at five something to, mm-hmm. and within a day or so moved up to 11. So we're going to spend two nights there to acclimatize. Then we're going to move up some more and spend two nights at 14,000 because that's where people really start to feel the altitude. And that extra night helps people to adjust. Well, I'll just tell you that you know, I've been on top of Mount Whitney, which is uh-huh. the highest highest mountain in the, the lower 48, yeah. and that's at 14.5. And the last half mile getting to the top of that thing, it was it was like walk 100 yards and take a five-minute break. Walk 100 yards, take a five-minute break. Yeah. And that was just at 14,000 feet. And so I know we're going to leave 14,000 feet in the dust here in a little bit as we, as we approach uh, Everest Base Camp. And yeah. uh, I can't but even you- imagine... You went from sea level, presumably somewhere in California, to fourteen thousand feet. How quickly? Well, it it it, it came on the 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 last day of our Jomer trail hike, which you know we spent about eighty percent of our time on the the southern half above ten thousand feet. So we we had kind okay. of been acclimated, but okay. Yeah, Still. that's that's better than most people because I know a lot of people actually do a fairly quick trip to Whitney, and I think right. it's really hard on the system. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and altitude is like that. You know, the first day or two when you've made a big jump, it's a real struggle. And then if you stay there a couple of days, you start to produce a lot more red blood cells and feel better and hike better. And by the time you've been there for a while, you hike around no problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Bodies, so, they're amazing. Yes. Yep. For <laughs> sure. For sure. You never underestimate them. Uh, underestimate them. That's right. It's incredible what the body sure. can do. They're awesome right up until they're a liability. And what percentage of the folks that you worked with there or, or led, guided, uh, ended up with altitude sickness? Oh, uh, you mean clients? Clients, yes. Presumably. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what percentage? That's a good question. I, I don't know that I could give you a number about that. I mean, everybody feels the altitude. Everybody experiences that almost everybody will have a headache of some kind unless they're taking something like Diamox prophylactically. But if they wait to take it until they show symptoms, they're going to have a headache. They're going to have some loss of appetite. They're going to have all those initial symptoms for sure, some sleep disruption. People have had much more serious altitude complications over the years. And that is not a very high percentage because I tend to monitor them carefully going up especially. So I do daily medical checks with all of them, which is not that common, surprisingly, but Mm. um, take their O2 twice a day and check in with them every evening about how they're feeling, any symptoms that they're having. Because the other thing is people have a lot of GI complications and even other respiratory complications in Nepal. 
mm-hmm. especially on that trek. And so monitoring all of that pretty carefully because if you start to have GI problems, your system is taxed, then you're more susceptible to altitude problems. I mean, it's all cycling together in some ways, whole system. Right. Yep. And so the 14,000 feet, you say, say there are two nights. That is, not, is that base camp or is that below base camp still? No, that's Dingboche. So, which is the oh, highest. I love, I love that name, Dingboche. <laughs> yeah, that's the highest village, like highest permanent settlement in that region. And so, yeah. So then from there, we start really going up around the corner to Lobouche at 16,000. That's a tough day because we gain a lot of altitude and there's really nowhere to stay in between. And then from there, we go to Gorek Shep, which is the highest set of lodges on the trip. It's at the edge of the glacier. And then from there, we hike up Kalapatar, which is the classic viewpoint of Everest. And that's at 18.4, and that's a struggle, you know, people like we've hiked from 16 already and then go up that. And so it's, it's tough. It's steep at the end. And then the next day we usually go out to base camp. And uh, so most of these base camp trips I was guiding for a company that's based in Seattle called Mountain Madness. <clears throat> a lot of people have heard of them because the book and movie Into Thin Air was mm-hmm. about Scott Fisher and that was Scott Fisher's company. These days, it's owned and run by Mark Gunlickson. They're a bunch of great guys. And so I guided for them for many years and still do. So then I still do some freelance trips that are my own company. Okay. And what is the altitude of base camp? Well, it depends where you are in the glacier, but roughly 17,700 feet, 800 feet. And so because I guided for Mountain Madness, they used to put up summit teams. So we actually used to spend the night uh, with the climbing teams out there and would sleep on the glacier at base camp, which most trekking companies don't do. And that was a really cool experience to be, yeah, to just be out on the glacier all night. You can hear it crack and pop. You can hear the avalanches. You can see the climbing teams leave early, early in the morning and the headlamps moving up through the Kumbu icefall. And they just look like ants in relation to the massive amounts of ice that is there. So base camp is actually lower than Kalapatar. That's right. So Gorek Shep, uh, from Gorek Shep, you hike up Kalapatar, which is the viewpoint, mm-hmm. and then back down. That's just a, a rocky peak. Got it. Got and it. Then you hike out along the glacier and out onto the glacier and then further up the glacier. And, and what kinds of temperatures are we talking about there? Uh, well, very pleasant in the daytime often. And, you know, we're also going in prime trekking season, so much more comfortable. But at night... I mean, well below freezing, you know. Yeah. That's where that negative 25 degree sleeping bag comes in handy. Yeah, and sleeping on the glacier. So you're sleeping on ice. So it just sucks the heat out of you all night long. It's, yeah. And I, I run cold anyway when I sleep. But uh, yeah, it's pretty cold sleeping on ice like that. Hey, Dina, are you familiar with Eric Larson? I know his name. You see the polar explorer? Yes, yeah, so he is uh-huh. a polar explorer. He's the only human to have been uh, at the North Pole, the South Pole, and the top ah, yes. of Everest in one That's calendar right. year. Mm-hmm. And so he was on the podcast uh, earlier this season, and oh, he nice. took us he took us through that that day, the final day, the ascent to the top of Everest. And I have to tell you, 
it gave me chills just hearing him describe it and uh, yeah. everything he went through and what it was like up there. I, you know, I, I find I, I pinch myself uh, thinking about the people that I've, I've had the chance to talk to as you know part of doing this podcast, and I, I consider myself very, very lucky. And uh, so yeah, his well, story was just amazing. I don't doubt it. And, you know, that is a whole class beyond what I do. I, I tell people like we go all the way to the start and then we turn around and go home. Because <laughs> 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 what those Everest uh, expedition folks with the summit teams are doing is a whole different class. And it's, you know, it's mountaineering. Whereas what we're doing is hiking through um, fairly extreme environments, but moving every day and hiking and a lot of cultural connection and what those summit teams are doing is climbing over ice and rock and really digging way deep down inside of themselves to conquer the highest mountains in the world and it's it's a totally different thing yes and have you read into thin air yeah yeah many years ago yeah, yeah I, I read that uh, before i talked to eric larson just to get a just get a sense of, of things before I talk to him. And mm -hmm. uh, man, it, it, it sounds crazy. I mean, it, you've got to have some, you've got to have this fire inside of you to get to the top of that mountain. You sure do. But you know, a lot of things sound crazy until you do them. And I thought it was going to be totally crazy, like living in the Himalayas where there was no road and teaching and yeah, then, you know, it just became normal. And I think that if what you do is spend your life in the mountains climbing and yeah, it seems totally reasonable, but yes, I think people do have a passion for it. Everest in particular has become very commercialized and there's a lot of people who want to do that just to say that they've accomplished that thing and they're not necessarily passionate climbers per se, mm -hmm. but I think almost anywhere else you go in the world to see people climbing, like they've really got a passion for it. Yeah. And, and, Correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I very well may, may be, but the commercialization of Everest, that, that has led to some additional problems, is my many. understanding. Yeah. yeah, many. I mean, just both in terms of capacity. So, of course, it's brought increased revenue, but it's also brought increased environmental impact. Mm -hmm. um, having people who are less adept in the same environments as people who are very adept and trying to summit creates some problems. I'm sure you've seen photos of the hundreds of people in a line trying right. to work their way up the, the ropes and things like that. So, and there have been other conflicts over the years. And Yeah. And when you're in a line of a hundred people waiting to get to the top and you experience a medical emergency, I imagine you are kind <laughs> of, you're kind of locked into that position. It's tough to, get that person help. Yeah, I think it is. And, you know, again, this is beyond my purview, but mm -hmm. I do know that that's an issue. Yeah. Hey, just because something's beyond our purview doesn't prevent <laughs> us from talking about it. We, we, we do that all the time, Dina. <laughs> as long as you're not going to hold me to it. <laughs> no, no. And the tagline for the, you know, the description for this podcast is, is you know, uh, it's a romp through trails, uh, short and long told by people who barely survive. So it's, it's already there. We're not, we're not experts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very good. So uh, tell me about what happened in 2013 for Dina uh, Zabaldo. Sure. I think you're referencing the fact that I won the World Guide Awards. World Guide Awards. Yes. Yeah. yeah so Wanderlust Magazine is a 
kind of the UK equivalent of Outside Magazine. So it's an outdoor adventure magazine that's very well-known and well-respected, and they uh, sponsor uh, the World Guide Awards every year. And so that is guides from all different kinds of trips, not just trekking, people who guide safaris, and I mean, just all kinds of stuff. And Mountain Madness nominated me for it. And then a whole bunch of my former clients wrote in about why they thought I should win. And Wanderlust has a number of criteria. I don't know all of the criteria they use to assess everything, but some of it is expertise. Some of it is client service and client recommendations. Some of it is giving back. And, you know, I had, I had expertise in a lot of those areas, right? So... I spoke Nepali. I had been guiding for a number of years at that point. I had been in Nepal. I had been uh, running a nonprofit and doing work to give back with every trip and clients on every trip wanted to know how they could give back and um, supported a lot of the work that we did over the years, which was really amazing, as well as just giving to the, the trekking staff. Like people were really generous in supporting the teams and part of what I always wanted to do as I traveled with groups was to connect them to the local culture and the people and to see the reality of people's lives and so some of that was just seeing the reality of like what is our staff's lives like every trip i used to put together uh, a porter not a porter program but a staff program where everybody on our staff would come together with all of the clients and we would sit around and have tea and talk about each other's lives. And this is where everybody would get to find out like how many kids you have at home, what you do in the off season, whether you're, you know, from Canada and you're a doctor or whether you're a farmer in a village and you grow rice, like everybody shared about their lives and it just formed a really deep connection. So I did a lot of things like that, that I think set apart the trips that I ran over the years. And yes, I made the cut. I made the final three. I didn't know if I was really going to win, but I got invited to go to London to the National Geographic Society there. And then the winners were announced and I, I won. How many, how many winners <laughs> overall? Just, just one. Just one. <laughs> you, you, Dina Zabaldo, guest on the John Freaking Your Pod, you were the World Guide Award winner for 2013. Yeah. Wow. Congratulations. That's so exciting. Thank you. Thank you. Did it come with some huge monetary award? Uh, no, it, can't. it did come with a cash award, but not huge. Okay. And yeah, some very nice binoculars, uh, Zeiss binoculars, a few other things. Yeah. Very but good. Mostly, Sounds like it was just the validation and recognition was sure. really great. And yeah. the support from my clients over the years, I, I heard through the grapevine when I was there that uh, a lot of people wrote in on my behalf, which was really sweet. And, you know, there are people competing for this who guide dozens of trips in a year back to back to back to back or like full-time guides and have thousands of clients over the years and i've never really done that i guide a couple of trips a year and granted they're longer these are not week-long trips they're three or four week trips but um yeah i think a very high percentage of people who have traveled with me really appreciated the experiences that they had and wrote in and that was really powerful for me to just see how many people were moved by the experience because I have watched people over the years be completely transformed by their experiences. And yeah, it changes people, you know, and I'm sure you know this from being on the trail, it changes 
how you view yourself, how you view the world, what you think you're capable of, makes you grateful for small things in your life, supports people in pursuing their vision and their dreams. And people have gone home from these trips and quit their job, broken up with their girlfriend, moved to a different town, changed careers. Somebody on my very first trip joined the Peace Corps. <laughs> you know, people have done all kinds of things. And, and even people who haven't had those kind of major life shifts, they've just been touched by their experiences in Nepal. A lot of people still say that those, that that trip has stayed with them, you know, for 10, 15 years and is one of the best trips they ever took because the people in Nepal are amazing. I do a lot to support cultural connection between people. The mountains are phenomenal. And <clears throat> the rigor of being out on the trail for that long and being in a place that's so foreign is a really powerful experience. Yeah, it's a common theme that comes up on the podcast is the transformational uh transformative power of the trail yeah. and how people enter uh, the start of a trail in one particular state of, of mind or existence. And when they're finished, they, they're, they're different people. Yeah, absolutely. And around that time also, I had done some pretty unusual trips. Uh, we took a trip, I designed a trip that we brought a Buddhist monk along with us for the trek and went to the Hidden Valley of Happiness, which is a sacred Buddhist valley. And we trekked all through there, but the experience of trekking with a monk, both of like seeing how he approaches life on a day-to-day -day basis, as well as the entree that it gave us into villages and communities and monasteries um, was a really powerful experience for people and I had also guided some unusual routes in Bhutan, uh, the old king's route where he used to walk through the country to check on the status of his kingdom and his people. Yeah, so we followed some lesser used routes and went places that, you know, hadn't seen a trekking group in two years and they had seen one at that point. And, <laughs> you know. right. and even in recent years, Eastern Bhutan has opened up. We've hiked out there and been the first, brought the first trekking group to uh, Omba and Ombane in Eastern Bhutan and whole community came out to meet us. They brought us hot chilies, dried chili peppers as a gift for us to take home with us. We had sacks of chili peppers that we left with and we sat around and had a whole program with them. Again, learning about their lives, showing them photos, of people's families and houses on their phones, like just talking to them and um, yeah, being escorted by them to the next village. Like it was I've done some amazing things over the years. It's been fun. Definitely sounds amazing. Sounds like you have made an impact not only on your clients and your staff, but also uh, on, on the country itself. Hopefully more good than negative. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure it's yeah. been, been more good. Okay. Hey, we're going to take another quick break. When we come back, I want to talk to you about uh, when things don't go as planned. Uh, any, any stories of, of that sort that that's always uh, very interesting to me and entertaining so stay tuned for that we'll be right back sure want to make a podcast spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily then distribute it everywhere and even earn money all in one place for free it's called spotify for podcasters and here's how it works spotify for podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer 
So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your pod- podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like my creativity has raised to another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. And welcome back. Again, we're talking to Dina Zabaldo, the World Guide Award winner for the year 2013. And I just want to say that if, if an award has the word world in it and there's only one winner, I'm, I'm saying that's, that's pretty significant. So congratulations again, Dina. Thank you. I appreciate that. It was meaningful for me, but there's actually a lot of amazing guides out there that, uh, yeah, doing good work in the world. I feel very honored to just be able to have had the life that I have. And did you have a whole speech prepared? Did you have to get up on stage and, and do like a, an Academy Award type of <laughs> I did have to accept the award and thank people. I did not have a speech prepared. I didn't really think I was going to win, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's more terrifying, realizing that you have to give a speech on stage or, or guiding a four-week trek into the Himalayas? Speech, speech definitely. <laughs> yes. I agree. I agree. All right. Hey, when we, we left from the last segment, I had kind of teased that we would talk about uh, when things don't go as planned. That's, that's a common occurrence on the trail and any, any trail. And so I imagine that as a guide in the Himalayas, taking your clients – out for three, four weeks at a time at this altitude, there, there might be some examples of when things don't go as planned. Do you have any stories for us? Oh, I probably have a few tucked away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in the developing world, also things never go as planned. So you combine that with trail life and um, you get a recipe for the unpredictable. And that takes a lot of different forms. So before COVID, I had gone to Bhutan to lead the, a segment of the Snowman Trek, which is famous for being one of the world's hardest treks, by which we mean one of the hardest established routes. There are harder places to hike, for sure, but it's pretty intense. It's up and down over a series of passes in the high back country. And we got uh, up to the first really high pass and found that it was snowed in still because Bhutan had had an unexpected snowstorm across India and Bhutan, an unexpected uh, cyclone that had dumped a whole bunch of new snow in the pass. And it was a pretty remote area. So even if we were able to cut through there, we were then going to be going up and down trying to cross five more passes to get out and all of them were likely to be snowed in. So we, so I decided that was not our best plan at that time and uh, we also had a team member who was sick and needed to be evacuated and so for a few reasons we didn't push through that pass and we turned around and so then from there everything had to change the route the army permits the hotel reservations at the end of the trip i mean just everything along the way was suddenly um, up for grabs so we took a different route 
and we had a lot of really amazing experiences. We we took a route where there it was less remote, but still high back country. So it's kind of the first part of the snowman trek, which is a month long. So we had come up in the middle of it. We were supposed to turn right. We turned left instead and circled back around towards uh, Paro. And, you know, it rained every single day of that trip, which is not easy for people. And although in Bhutan, it's not uncommon that it rains at least a couple of days of any given trip, any time of year, it was raining every single day. And that was not part of the plan either, because we were supposed to be way up high in the Alpine territory where it doesn't precipitate as much. Um, so yeah, uh, we did all kinds of things though. Like one day we were sheltering from the rain and it was lunchtime and there's nowhere to shelter and we were coming through a village. And so I hit up the primary school head sir for uh, space for us to eat lunch. And then while we were eating, maybe, I don't know, 80 children filed in all in their school uniforms and lined up very neatly for their school lunch and carried their plates and got served their lunches and sat down in order from like the tallest to the smallest on mats on the floor and started eating their lunch. And did you and launch into old habits and start teaching them Chekhov? <laughs> no, I launched into other old habits. So when they were all done, the head sir was very gracious to us. And so he had them sing a song. Uh, and so then, you know, my habits are that then I rally everybody in the group to sing a song back. So we did that back and forth a few times. And you'd be surprised how hard it is to find a song that a whole bunch of Americans know the words to and can sing semi on key. So, so we did that back and forth until finally, uh, People were fairly worked up, and then I led the hokey pokey for all hundred of us or so. <laughs> nice. You know, I, was, I was just going to say that you know it's been my experience on the trail when I've been uh, by myself at at times and trying to pass the time. I quickly realized that I do not know all of the words to any song, <laughs> except <laughs> except Happy Birthday in Mount. Now maybe hokey pokey. I could probably do hokey yeah. pokey, but. Uh, the rest of them, I know the chorus and that's about it. So I can imagine how <laughs> difficult a, a, a challenge that, that must have been. Yes. And, you know, I'm pretty reserved and quiet. I'm an introvert by nature and I don't do any of this stuff in the States, but I feel like I have a responsibility <laughs> when I am leading groups to facilitate some of this stuff. So, so that was a great time. And, uh, and we also, because we were hiking down lower, saw the most amazing array of flowers. I mean, we probably saw 30 different kinds of rhododendrons and different orchids and different, I mean, there were just all these things. So, so there's a lot, you know, when things don't go as planned in terms of the itinerary and the route that things become very serendipitous, but more often what people are interested in about when things don't go as planned is what happens when somebody gets really sick. So I've had a number of people be evacuated off the trail over the years. And the very first time that happened, I uh, had an older couple on the trip and they were strong hikers and backcountry skiers and owned an outdoor sports store. And they were just fabulous and strong. And But he had been struggling with some respiratory and GI problems for a few days. We were actually on our way down at that point. And that's not when you expect anybody to be having uh, serious altitude problems for sure. But 
he was not hiking very well and we put him on a horse to help for the day that that we were gonna do this big climb and I actually was hiking with the group he was out ahead of us and I left the group and hiked out ahead to catch up with him and the horse because I wanted to see how he was doing and I got up there he was sitting on a stone bench and I walked up to see how he was doing he looked at me and he just fell forward onto me and those are the moments where it's like okay wait woofer training wait what airway breathing circulation you know these things that they drill into you and thank god they do because <laughs> those are the moments so um he did come around and when he did he couldn't tell me where he was and you know so he kind of knew his name but he was definitely out of it and by that point one of the staff had caught up with me and was asking you know like is he okay do we need to call a helicopter sister like should we call a helicopter you know there's a lot of pressure on for a decision in the moment yeah and i looked at this guy who was older had complications for days was not hiking well had lost consciousness and the answer was yeah like we're calling a helicopter right and that's become much more commonplace in the Everest region these days. But at the time, I mean, even then, like it was still, it was not that uncommon, but it was the first time it had happened to me. And I was very fortunate that season. We had some uh, people who were doing additional technical climbing stuff. So I had another Nepali guide with me, which was not uncommon. They would have a Nepali guide to take them like off on these spurs and do some other things. And the guy who was guiding with me that season was Pemba Sherpa, who is the National Geographic Adventurer of the Year from his, the rescues that he did on K2. And he just happened to be with us because it was an inauspicious year for him to be doing technical climbing per his llama. So, um, so he had a lot of experience. And so once he caught up with us, we were talking about what to do. And we basically had to move this guy from where we were to where a helicopter could get to us. And that's not an easy thing in the mountains. So the way that we did that is that they carried him on their backs. Two or three of them took turns. And um, yeah, the horseman, because your average rural Nepali is fairly strong. So our horseman was super strong and carried this guy and... Um, also one of our other young Sherpas who went on to run the Everest Marathon, become part of climbing teams. He carried him and they rotated through carrying him until we could get him to where we could get a helicopter to land. And the helicopter came up from Kathmandu with oxygen and we flew him out and that was pretty scary. Wow. Yeah, just even looking at the logistics of like, how do you get a rescue when you're ready for one? Right. And there have been times over the years when that hasn't been possible. And we've have helped to carry somebody down in a snowstorm, you know. Um, yeah. Yikes. A few. Yeah. Life or death. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's part of the package. That, that was pretty, that was pretty serious. Kind of, kind of <laughs> brought the mood down a little bit. Uh, sorry, but you know, that's a real part of being in the mountains. And Absolutely. Uh, even when you're taking good care of yourself and good care of other people, the unexpected can happen and you want to be sure that you have a plan for how that's going to be dealt with. Yeah. Yeah. There, there are some similarities to an experience I had. Um, I sometimes co-host who always listens. So I know he's going to hear this. 
uh, Chopper, he earned his trail name when we were out on, on the trail and we were stuck between two passes above 11,000 feet and he came down with altitude sickness. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he's a bit advanced in age. He's, he's younger than me, but uh, he's <laughs> a bit, and, and, and he's complicated. I don't know if, he's, if he had complications, but he's certainly complicated. And uh, he had to be carried out on a, on a helicopter, so... Yeah, those are dangerous situations between mm-hmm. two passes. Like you're lucky if a helicopter can get in, but if you can't and there's no way to descend and you got to go up and over, yeah, you've got problems right. with that. Yep. And, you know, in Bhutan, we carry a Gamoff bag, old school, uh, because you can be way in the backcountry and not really have another alternative. You have to be able to depressurize somebody where you are. Oh, that's what a, a was it a Gamoff bag? A Gamoff bag? Yeah, yeah, I mean you basically pump it up and it creates a pressure chamber so it's effectively lowering the altitude right where you are. Yeah. Okay. So Chopper, if you're listening and I know you are, that's your must bring piece of equipment. A Gamoff bag. <laughs> He's that's what need you a have to bring to on. Carry it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what you have to bring on your next trip. Very good. <laughs> All right. Hey, any embarrassing moments out on the trail? In the Himal- Himalayas? In, in Nepal. Oh, yeah. I distinctly remember uh, <laughs> having my whole group out on the glacier at Everest Base Camp, and I was going to go see if the medical tent was open because there's uh, Luann Freer started a great program up there that provides healthcare to all the groups and to all of the local staff, all of the Nepali staff at a discounted rate. And so uh, we often stop in to visit and see the facility and I was just going to pop over there to be sure that the tent was actually open and they weren't busy. And I took a couple of running steps on the glacier and fell flat on my ass in front of the whole group. (laughs) So that happens. This is the person guiding us. Okay. (laughs) By that point, I'd been with them for a while. I don't think their confidence was undermined, but they were entertained. Okay. Very good. All yeah, right. and you know, we've had all kinds of other crazy stuff happen over the years and just fun stuff. Uh, yeah, we've talked with Buddhist nuns and pet yaks and had, yeah, had yak butter tea and nomad tents in Bhutan and yeah, been inside people's living rooms far and wide. <laughs> Tell me, is the, is the yak dung dust in Kathmandu, is that really a thing? Not in Kathmandu. There's no yaks down there. Oh, okay. So the dust and pollution in Kathmandu is really terrible. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a tremendous amount of pollution there, both because it's a valley and because of all the exhaust and construction and all Mm -hmm. kinds of things and long dry season. Yeah, I think I had a previous... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, so then there are yak dung fires, which might be part of what you're thinking of up in high country. They basically, because there's no firewood, dry out the yak dung patties and then burn them. And, you know, if that's in an iron stove, then it's it's okay, right? Like it it's just like a fire anywhere when you first start it. The smoke comes into the room a little bit, and then once it gets going, it carries right out the flue. Mm-hmm. Are they cooking food on that iron stove? No, they're usually cooking food on propane in the kitchen. Okay. All right. <laughs> Good to know. Good yeah. to know. Yeah. And even, you know, when we take 
trekking groups, like we're not cooking on firewood, we're cooking on propane these days. We used to cook on kerosene stoves and those are really not good for the cooks. The quality of the air that they inhale in those tents year after year is a real problem. And so, um, yeah, we cook on propane now and, and better companies, it's something people could look for, but better companies will be carrying propane gas, even those big cylinders with stove. Mm-hmm. Okay, now what's next for Dina? Oh, gosh. Well, that depends on COVID, but it does seem like we are returning to all sorts of forms of normalcy now, and hopefully that includes adventure travel as well. I didn't get to complete that snowman trek back in 2019, so uh, that is on the books for this September through Mountain Madness, and I'm hoping that it'll happen and that we'll be successful. And beyond that, I have started guiding some other um, trips for my own company that are more a blend of spiritual adventure. So really getting to know the, the culture and getting a deep immersion into monasteries and far-flung corners of the country and combining that kind of cultural experience and spiritual experience with uh, less intense treks. So not 24-day treks, but maybe more like six or seven-day treks. <laughs> All right. Now, I want to ask him an opinion down on a, an impromptu top five list here. So if we had uh, maybe a long trail hiker who wanted to branch out and do something, you know, more international, go over to Nepal, what are the what are the top five must do or must see things in Nepal? Well, Mount Everest. But even more than Mount Everest, I would say the sweeping panorama of the Himalayas, which you should see both hiking through it and potentially from the plane as you land or depart. Five more things. Uh, you've got to visit a pagoda-style temple in one of the old palace squares. Those date back to the 18th century and are typically Hindu temples. And be sure to ring the bell to get the God's attention and receive a blessing while you're there. So that's Hindu. You should also visit a Buddhist monastery. The Tibetan Buddhist community in exile is very large in Nepal. And so there are Tibetan Buddhist monasteries all over and they are a cacophony of color while being very serene and still places. And so, and they often have, you know, two story tall statues in the middle of them. <laughs> so that's pretty fascinating. Uh, visit a village off the beaten route, so someplace that doesn't have tourists going through it all the time, and just kind of wander through and see people because village life is absolutely one of the best things in Nepal. Um, at four? I, I, think I, think that's, other, I think that's five, but you have, if you have another one, okay. go, go right ahead. You should eat Nawari food. Nawari people were the indigenous artisans of the Kathmandu Valley, and they built structures and completed statues all throughout the Himalayan region. And uh, they have awesome food that's very different from the traditional Nepali rice and vegetables. And they, they eat both a lot of parts of the animal that we don't eat in other parts of the world, but they also just have great beaten rice and bamboo shoot gravy and delicious preparation meat curries and all kinds of things. Well, you had me at gravy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Dina, you know where we are? Where are we? 
we are at that time of the episode where I ask you for your pro tip insight of the week. What bit of wisdom can you share with our listeners to make their next outdoor adventure even better? Pack your sense of humor. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of talk about gear and everything else, but really in the end, wherever you are in the world, it's about how you show up. And so be kind and bring a sense of humor, be flexible. If you can do that, everything else will work out <clears throat> or it won't, but something will happen, you know. <laughs> and at least you'll be able to laugh about it. Yeah, and kind of take it with ease and grace because nothing is ever always going to go as planned. That is for sure. Excellent pro tip. So there you have it. That's it. This bonus episode for season two is in the books. Hope our listeners enjoyed our time with Dina. I want to thank her for joining us this week. Dina, how can our listeners keep up with you on social media and where can they find updates on your latest adventures? Well, I confess I'm very sporadic on my digital life, but you can find me on Instagram, underscore live what you love, or you can look me up, Dina Zabaldo. And I do post Instagram when I'm traveling in far-flung places. And you can also find one very outdated website at parahamsa.com, P-A-R-A-H-A-M-S-A.com for updated itineraries, trips, what's happening next. And you could also just come with me to Bhutan this fall if you're ready to travel. Book a trip. There you go. Yep. All right. Remember to check out the pod on social media as well. We're on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you have comments or clips you want to share, you can send it to me at johnfreakingmuir at gmail.com. Dina, I'm also looking to you to give a recommendation for a book, a movie, a documentary, a website, or a YouTube channel that will keep our listeners connected to outdoor adventures. We're calling this our adventure media recommendation. What do you have for us? Mm -hmm. uh, Maiden. Have you seen Maiden? It is a movie, it's a documentary of the first all-women's sailing team to sail around the world as part of the Whitbread Challenge, and it's got original footage from the 70s interspersed with interviews with those women today, and it's a pretty fabulous story, so that's great. Where, where can um, we watch that? Is that on Netflix? I can't answer that question for you. Okay, maybe. <laughs> it's been maybe. a little while since I've seen it. Okay. Uh, I don't remember which, which channel. That's really good. Um, I also, I really liked the biography of Gertrude Bell. I mean, since we're on the theme of women. So Gertrude Bell was a contemporary of Lawrence of Arabia and was actually in uh, the Middle East slightly ahead of him and advised the British government eventually as Iraq and the Middle East uh, states were formed. But before that, she was out exploring in the desert and traveling with fine china and crystal and knew all of the Arab leaders and which ones were more important and who she gave bigger guns to and who she should give smaller guns to because she always brought gifts as she traveled and she was well-versed in different languages and local politics and was one of the original female explorers. So you can check that out. Nice. And I don't know about you, Dina, but I always pack fine china and crystal in my backpack when I'm, when I'm out on the trail. Yes, because all the sheiks respected her as being very wealthy and, you know, like it was a sign of status and prestige. Not because she needed it, but because it was how she gained their respect in a world full of men. All right. That and the guns. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's Gertrude Bell. Yes. Okay. All right. And before we wrap things up, I've also got another segment called, what have I not asked you that you're dying to tell me about? What did I miss? Did I miss anything? You didn't ask me about seeing the snow leopard. Oh, let's hear about it. 
Yeah, last, uh, not last year, time is blur right now, 2019, when I was on that trip um, that didn't quite go as planned, but we were coming into lunch and our staff were ahead of us and kind of turned the corner. And I think they spooked the leopard in the spot where we were going to have lunch because it came over the top of a ridge and ran 20 feet in front of me and all the way down the side of the ridge and across the little creek and up the other side and all of that was exposed we were above the tree line and so we just the all the people that were kind of at the front of the group we all saw it run down and up the other side it was just amazing for an animal you don't see very often it's the first one i've ever seen and it's not uncommon that they're down hunting the baby yaks at that time of year um, but yeah, that was pretty phenomenal. Yeah. I understand that's a rare occurrence. You don't, you don't see snow leopards. They, they are well camouflaged. Yes. Although you do see them in Bhutan at that time of year, it's not that uncommon there. Um, and Bhutan in general is really well preserved environmentally and culturally. And part of why I really love traveling there is because there's so much wildlife and we see wildlife on every trip. That's pretty surprising, but yeah, that was a special moment. It'll stay with me my whole life. Very good. I'm so glad I asked you, what didn't I ask you? So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's a wrap from the John Freakamere studio. Any shout outs to friends and family, Dina? Oh my gosh, to all of the staff here in the US and abroad, especially in Nepal and Bhutan who make all these trips possible. Deeply grateful to them and uh, yeah. Okay, thank you for tuning in. Always remember the trail is the trail. It doesn't care if you wanna go downhill. It doesn't care if it's almost dark and you're looking for a campsite. It doesn't even care if your llama has told you it's not your year for technical climbing. The trail is the trail. Embrace the suck. <laughs>